0: and various studies throughout the week. Please come and join us next time you are in Oklahoma City. We would love to have you. And now, we hope you enjoyed today's message.
1: In Sefer Bereshit, the book of Genesis is full of interesting narrative and story and Uh, And you'd have to say it has many unusual characters in it. But I was thinking of characters in Scripture that tend to inspire me. Can you think of some? I mean, first on our list, of course, is Yeshua and the apostles. But as I was in my own mind, in my own thinking, my own preparation, thinking, well, who really inspires me in Scripture? In, In Scripture, the name Joseph came up. And actually, both Josephs, the Joseph that's often related to this time of the year, the, the uh, husband of Miriam, Mary, um, uh, Mary, the mother of Yeshua, but also the Joseph who was the son of Jacob. Now, Joseph, the son of Jacob, is really what we find as we read the Torah portions for this time of the year uh, from Genesis, chap- basically from Genesis chapter 37 through chapter 50. Joseph is involved with all those chapters. It's a a big section. In fact, if you look at the whole overview of the book of Genesis, Joseph is a major character in one-fourth of the whole book of Genesis. That shows you how important he is. And if you know his story, many of us do, and you may have seen the movie, but if you know his story, you realize that uh, Joseph not only being, was a dominant figure, but he wasn't all alone in his family. He had 11 other brothers, he had one full brother with the same mother and father, and that was his brother Benjamin, and he had 10 half-brothers who had the same father but different mothers. So all all in all, there were 12 of them. And Joseph was uh, outstanding in many ways, and he was a dominant figure in the history of Israel, but yet in the very beginning of his life, he seems to have been dominated by circumstances have you ever been dominated by circumstances probably you have and but he was dominated by circumstances and when we look at his story the story of joseph it's it's a familiar one to us in many ways not only because of the our biblical understanding of it what we studied of the book of joseph or the story of joseph but but also he, he apparently had loving he had loving parents particularly his father His father really loved him. Remember, gave him the kutonet pasim; it's called in Hebrew, gave him, it's often translated the coat of many colors. And this father gave that to him as a gift, and it seemed to symbolize a special relationship between Jacob and Joseph, Jacob being the father of Joseph. But even as his father was kind to him, it seemed, and favorable towards him, Well, virtually all his brothers, save Benjamin, were very not nice to him. How do I say it? Kind. They were unkind to him. They weren't nice to him. They didn't look at him favorably. And there he was. He seemed to be a man, as we read scripture, he seemed to be a young man that had a heart, that seemed to care about people and, and that type of thing. But yet those around him, the vast majority of those around him didn't seem to care so much for him. We could say it this way that, and maybe you faced this kind of situation in your life that there were people who were near and dear to you, but you didn't feel like they really cared that much about you. And when we start talking in those kind of terms, we realize that what we read about Joseph, in fact, what we read in Scripture, the narratives of Scripture, oftentimes really hit home for us. We can relate to, we can relate to some of what we read in Scripture and some of the, the uh, situations that scripture presents to us as we read through it. A, sp- a further thing about Joseph that I think is, is a dominant idea is that Joseph faced, goes without saying, he faced many obstacles in life. Perhaps you're here today and you're facing some obstacles in your life. Or your family's facing some obstacles It's because of stories or the narratives that we read about in Scripture, such as Joseph's story, that we can gain strength, we can gain encouragement, and just see how God was able to deal in the situation that Joseph faced. His situation was extreme. I mean, he seemed to be a tender person, and we'll talk more about him, but his circumstances were quite difficult. I started listing some of the obstacles that Joseph faced in his life. And some of these, as I mentioned, some of the... I'm just going to read from you my list, people. I like lists. I'm going to read to you my list. The things that I wrote, some of the obstacles he faced. And some of these may not seem like obstacles, but in his time and in his place and his situation, these were obstacles. For example... Joseph was a son of a shepherd. (laughs) Now, hold on to that one. You might say, what's the big deal about that? That must be great. Well, hold on to that. If you're not familiar with Joseph's story, that's a key point. He was the son of a shepherd. He was despised, he was envied, and he was even hated, and that's the right word, hated by most of his brothers. He was also mocked by his brothers. His brothers conspired to kill him. <laughs> they treated Joseph cruelly. I mean, look at how this list is building here, and I've just begun. He treated Joseph cruelly. They threw Joseph in a pit, and the pit becomes representative of basically the, the dark pit of life, the dark place of life. Just They threw him into the pit and basically tried to get rid of him. He was rejected. All this leads to he was rejected by his own brothers, and then they lied to his father, to Joseph's father, their father Jacob. They lied to him about jo- about Joseph's fate. So they, through one truth, they gave the wrong impression about what had happened to Joseph, whom Jacob loved dearly. And it's hard to read the narrative about this transaction when they tell Jacob what they say happened to his son Joseph and Jacob is beside himself in mourning and many times if I've read this over the years I have thought could they not have softened their hearts seeing their own father crying and mourning and weeping and aching but they didn't they still maintained the ruse that a wild animal had killed Joseph as they watched Jacob suffering and pain, emotional pain, at the perceived loss of his dear son, Joseph. So they conspired against Joseph, and they basically separated him by their actions from the one person that Joseph knew loved him. That one person, that was his father, Jacob. The one who had given the... The, the coat of stripes, the coat of many color, they separated him from him. And then, as if all this isn't bad enough and difficult enough and obstacle enough, at the age of 17, Joseph was sold to the Ishmaelites. And they carted him away to Mitzrayim. Can you say Mitzrayim? To Mitzrayim, to Egypt. So he sold to the Ishmaelites, They take him away to the Mitzrim, to the Egyptians. So they carted Joseph away to a very strange land, the land of the Egyptians. So they sold him to the Egyptians. And who, by the way, uh, the Egyptians were told this in scripture, the Egyptians despised shepherds. And Joseph, really, his background, we encounter Joseph, he's dealing with the sheep, and he's involved with the sheep. He's going to talk to his brothers in Dothan, who are taking care of the, the flocks. So he gets to Egypt. He's sold to Egypt. He gets to Egypt. And, and, and what does he say his vocation is? What did he say his profession is? If he says he's a shepherd, <laughs> they despise shepherds. Shepherds were the bottom rung in their society. But that was the one skill Joseph probably was quite familiar with, was shepherding. So Joseph was separated from all that was familiar to him. Everything. Separated from his mishpacha, from his family. Separated from his homeland, the land that he knew. Separated from the language that he spoke. Separated from the culture that he knew. Separated from the customs he was familiar with. Separated from the food he knew. Separated from the attire he was used to wearing. The Egyptians wore something differently. Later on when we encounter Joseph, after God has worked miraculous through Joseph, we see him dressed in a whole different manner. His, his His apparel, his appearance was so different that his own brothers didn't even recognize him. That's how different the attire was. And, of course, there's the religious faith aspect. Joseph's the son of Jacob, one of the great avot, or patriarchs of Israel. And he ends up in Egypt in a very bad situation. Now, up to this point, it's bad enough, you would agree, right? This is bad enough, but that's not all of it. So he's sold into Egypt. He becomes a house servant for a guy named Potiphar, who's an Egyptian regent. And he's there, and Potiphar trusts him, and he's there in Potiphar's house, and Potiphar's wife falsely accuses Joseph of immorally trying to take advantage of her. And Scripture points out that none of it was true. Potiphar then brings accusation against him. We don't know how Potiphar felt about it all, but he certainly uh, makes sure that Joseph is unrighteously placed in an Egyptian jail. And if you read carefully the text in Genesis, it never says how long he's going to be in the Egyptian jail. In modern culture, you're given a sentence, a mishpat, a sentence, and they'll say, well, you've served to four years or two years or life or whatever they say. There's a sentence involved. But the text in Genesis never mentions Joseph's sentence. So Joseph's placed in this Egyptian jail, not knowing if or when he'll ever get out. He's totally dependent upon this strange culture, this strange justicism, this strange everything. He's totally dependent. He'd become somewhat of accustomed to it, but it still wasn't his natural setting. And by the way, in case you're wondering what Egyptian deals were like, let me just say it this way. They weren't like Airbnbs with amenities. They were tough places. They're still tough places in Egypt. So J- Joseph there, just imagine we were talking about some of the physical side, but imagine the emotional side of this. This Young man feels forsaken. He's rejected. He's he, he may even feel forgotten by his own family. And he doesn't know what has happened behind the scenes that his brothers have been deceiving his very father into believing that Joseph's dead. He doesn't know. There he is. And he doesn't have all this. I mean, there's no way for him to get on his cell phone and call Jake and say, Hey, I'm all right, I'm in jail. Come get me out. Post bail so I can get out. None of that. So Joseph could have easily fallen into the trap of thinking after all these things that had happened to him have come upon his life just thinking that his life is at a dead end. He is a ruined person. It's hopeless for him. His future is bleak at best. That's where he could have went with his life. And I mentioned that Joseph inspires me. It's because of these very things that happen now. He doesn't lose hope. We sang today, those of you who are here early enough, we sang Hadikva, the hope. Hadikva, the hope. Joseph doesn't lose hope. He, even in the jail, what does he do? He gives his all. He excels in the jail. His, the Egyptian leaders in the jail, they recognize him as a gifted man. And, you know, it wasn't just a shepherd that he was gifted in. The hand of God was upon this man, even though his circumstances were horrendous, horrendous. And Joseph's family didn't even know Joseph's fate. They didn't even know if he existed. Although my, my opinion, and you can think about this yourself, is that deep down, Jacob knew that there's something different about his son, that maybe, maybe, maybe my son's still alive. Maybe. And parents, you can probably relate to that, this heart connection with your children. You, you know, you, you, got a, you got another sense about it. And I always had this as I read through Sefer Bereshit and, and how Jacob responds to Joseph's situation that maybe he knew deep inside in his heart of hearts, something's not kosher here. Maybe my son is still alive and he didn't lose hope. If we were to state all this in modern terminology, we would say that Joseph came from what? A dysfunctional family. <laughs> he was an unskilled laborer. <laughs> we're putting this in modern terms now. He's an unskilled laborer, and what skill he did had was very undesirable. He had scant family support, scant. He couldn't really count on that part of that was his brother's doing, his half-brother's doings. And he was also now that he ends up in the Egyptian jail, now he's a, he's a jailbird. <laughs> now he's, or, And when he gets out, he's a former jailbird. Think about it. And at least from his brother's point of view, something I haven't mentioned yet, but it certainly plays into the whole narrative of Joseph, from his brother's point of view, you know how they saw Joseph? They didn't see him well, we know that. But they saw him as some kind of a weird oddball kind of guy. I mean, they, they, they saw him as a weird dreamer. Someone who, 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 who was a dreamer of halamot of dreams. You remember what it says in Genesis 37? Because they initially, they taunted him. They wanted to kill him. They mocked him. They mocked him because of his dreams. In Genesis chapter 37, verse 18, it says, Now when they saw Joseph afar off, he'd been sent by his father, Jacob. When they saw him afar off, even before he came near them. So this was premeditated. This wasn't spontaneous. Before Joseph even got to them. It says they conspired against him to kill him. And this is how they communicated with one another about him. They said to one another, look, this dreamer is coming. That's how they were talking about him. Look, this dreamer is coming. Come therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit. And we shall say some wild beast has devoured him. And we shall see what become of his dreams. And his dreams were incredibly inspired dreams that were very difficult to hear for his family because they seemed to say that Joseph would end up at a place of authority one day that his brothers would have to acknowledge. Isn't that what happened with Joseph? (laughs) Exactly. But they said, we'll see what will become of his dreams. Let's throw him in the pit. Let's get rid of him. So let's be honest here this morning. If we didn't know the story of Joseph, particularly its outcome, this was totally new to us with some of the data that I just mentioned to you, biblically-based data about him. Would we consider Joseph a candidate for success in life with all that we've talked about? The chances are, no, we would not. And to me, that's just how... Precious is the grace of God for us. That when we were dead in our sins and hopeless, God sent his son, Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah, to die for us. And the odds were totally against us because we'd all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the very outcome, the wages of sin, death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Yeshua the Messiah. And in fact, many, many theologians see a parallel between what Joseph went through and what Yeshua went through. And it's there, if you look at it. It's called the type, where Joseph becomes, as it were, a type of the Messiah. Not a perfect fit, but a type of the Messiah, which we'll discuss in Shabbaton. Now, it is Stephen as recorded in the book of Acts. Stephen, who, by the way, was the first Messianic Jewish martyr, first Jewish believer, to, according to Scripture, who laid down his life for testimony of Yeshua, the Messiah. It's Stephen who offers some great insight into Joseph's life. And he offers insight that points us to the hand of the sovereign God that was on him. Yes, all these things that we said had happened, and more than I've even mentioned, had happened to Joseph. All the strikes, the proverbial strikes, were against this man. But notice what Stephen says. Acts chapter 7, verse 9. After he gives this message, recorded in Acts chapter 7, he's martyred after this message. So these are some of his final thoughts and some of the things he was transferring to his hearers at that time. And he speaks of Joseph. It recounts in Acts chapter 7 exactly what the Torah says. It says, and the patriarchs becoming envious, some translations say jealous, they sold Joseph into Egypt. Now this statement here, that we just read, Acts chapter 7, verse 9, and the patriarchs becoming envious or jealous sold Joseph into Egypt, confirms an underlying motive, an underlying motive for the terrible actions of Joseph's brothers towards him. And that motive was to put it in two simple English terms that are very deep in meaning, envy or jealousy. Jealousy. Now that le- that four-letter word envy doesn't seem like such a potent thing. Jealousy's a little stronger. They're both related. Hebrew language has the same root for both of those. But that doesn't seem like such a uh, a significant thing. Envy. I mean, come on. How, how serious could that be? But I want to propose to you today. That's very serious. Very serious stuff. Envy and jealousy in the wrong direction is very serious. And Proverbs 4.23, often heard here at this congregation, tells us to keep, to watch over, to guard your heart. How? With all diligence. And the idea of guarding your heart, it has this idea of also what's motivating your heart. What's really the inclination of your heart? Guard that. What's really motivating you in life? Be careful about your motivations, the inclinations of your heart. Be careful about that. Keep, watch over, guard your heart with all diligence. It goes that from it comes the issues of life, from your heart. With God's help and in accord with Joseph's simple faith, that's the other thing that inspires me about Joseph. He's not overtly religious and all that, but he seems to have a simple faith. You you get this sense as you read his story and, and, and you read the narrative, you get this sense that he's going through all this terrible stuff, but somehow he's just clinging. If we could use new covenant term, he's clinging to the hem of his garment. He's clinging to the Lord. He's realizing there's someone greater than his circumstance. And it's so important for us when we face adverse circumstances to realize that the Lord is greater than that circumstance. And we must latch hold of him, stay in tune with him, walk with him through the difficulty that we face. But Joseph seemed to have a simple faith, a simple trust in God. And it seems, and, and I'll suggest this to you for your own consideration about Joseph, it seems like one of the things that Joseph was able to do, despite all the terrible things that I've mentioned been done to him, emotionally, physically, etc. but there is one thing Joseph was able to do, and it shows by his actions, is he was able to guard his heart. Later on, he had every opportunity, and we'll counter this in the future Torah portion. He had every opportunity for revenge to do as whatever he wanted to his brothers. He was actually in that position that he could do. He could get his brothers back tenfold for all they did. And someone of a lesser heart might have done just that. But Joseph makes one of those statements that has just resonated throughout the centuries and the millennia. He, has, he said, what they meant for evil, what? God has turned for good. Depend on your translation, but God has turned for good. And he had them right in the palm of his hand, and he doesn't do evil to them. What does that say? There's evidence there. There's evidence that he did keep his heart. His brothers were full of all kinds of evil towards him, but somehow in his simplicity, he kept his heart with all diligence, and it pays off big time for him. We read in Genesis 37, verse 11, and his brothers envied, and this is what Acts chapter 7, verse 9 is referring to. His brothers envied, they were jealous. Of Joseph, and the Hebrew word that's translated in Proverbs twenty-seven four is the same root word that's found in Genesis thirty-seven verse eleven. Proverbs twenty-seven verse four declares, "Wrath is cruel and anger a torrent, but who is able to stand before jealousy?" (laughs) I was so happy to hear that verse come up behind the stage here today. Let me read it again. Wrath is cruel, and anger a torrent. But who is able to stand before jealousy? It says if jealousy goes beyond even anger and wrath and cruelty. Jealousy. And you know, this thing, jealousy, envy, however you want to term it, both are synonymous terms coming from two directions, but point to the same thing. The new covenant lists envy and jealousy as, can I call them this, the rotten fruits of the flesh. Now, we talk a lot about the fruit of the spirit, but connected to that in the same text in Galatians chapter 5, what I like to call the rotten fruits of the flesh. (laughs) You know them. They're listed alongside some of the good fruit of the spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, but let me read you Galatians chapter 5 from the Brit Chadasha, beginning with verse 19. Rabshaul calls them our English translation now the works, the deeds, the actions, that which is associated with. Now the works of the flesh are evident. In other words, these things can be noticed. We may think we hide them, and maybe for a season we're able to hide some of these rotten fruits of the flesh and and spruce them up a little bit, perfume on them or try to make them look good but they become obvious now the works of the flesh are evident which are please notice this, adultery fornication uncleanness lewdness idolatry sorcery hatred contentions jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past. So not only is he telling them now, but he had previously told them probably when he saw them face to face these very same things. Just as I told you in time past, that those who practice, and if you're circling in your Bible, that's the key word, practice, those who practice such things will what? Will not inherit the kingdom of God. Friends, if we're holding on to any of these things as practices in our life, you're probably in a spiritual Russian roulette. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So if allowed to grow in our heart, envy and jealousy can lead to spiritual, emotional, and physical harm for us. as Proverbs 40, verse 30 says, a sound heart is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. A sound heart is life to the body, but envy, some translators say jealousy, is what? It's rottenness to the bones to the bones it's good to get rid of that stuff if you're carrying any of those things to get rid of it it's going to hurt you and it's going to be evident and come up and be seen by others Acts chapter 7 verse 9 though states further says and the patriarchs becoming envious or becoming jealous. They sold Joseph into Egypt. And here's the key phrase right after that, that Stephen, before his martyrdom, he says this about Joseph, Acts 7, verse 9, but God was with Joseph. Will you say that with me? But God was with Joseph. There's the differentiation. God was with Joseph. And that was it. That's what separated him. His brothers went another direction, but God was with Joseph. The nearness of God and God's presence in Joseph's life and God's desire to help Joseph and intervene is true also for your life. He desires to help and intervene for you. We call him Emmanuel with us as God. Now, Stephen then continues in Acts chapter 7, verse 10, after he says, God was with Joseph, and he delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt, and not only governor over all Egypt, but also over all of his own house. The scripture says that Joseph was like a father to Pharaoh. There was no one higher in Egypt except for Pharaoh and then Joseph. They were close there. And Pharaoh, eventually, as we basically know the narrative, basically entrust the running of Egypt to who to Joseph. Now, this text in Acts chapter seven verse ten really shows us five major results in Joseph's life of God's blessing. You may have noticed in Acts chapter 7, verse 10, let me remind you. First of all, God delivered Joseph out of all his troubles. That's a blessing, isn't it? When you're delivered out of your troubles. Either sweet hallelujah when you're delivered out of your trouble. Thanksgiving goes up to God when you realize, hey, the Lord got me through this. God delivered Joseph out of all his troubles. And then the second thing, God gave Joseph favor. God was with Joseph, delivered him out of all his troubles, and gave him favor. And the third thing, God endued Joseph with wisdom. God gave Joseph favor and wisdom. And that brings us to the fourth thing, which was actually very critical. God gave Joseph access to Pharaoh. Pharaoh. It says, God gave Joseph favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh. Joseph got an audience with the authority of Egypt, the king, the Melech, the Pharaoh, paro, of Mitzrayim. And then, number five, God uses then Pharaoh, he uses Pharaoh to place Joseph in a position of great authority and impact. We could even say responsibility That's how God worked through all this. Now, Joseph's brothers did all that stuff, but God was with Joseph, and God saw him through all of it, and not only saw him through all of it, but really caused him to be raised up in that nation, raised up in that, what was a foreign culture to him. He raised him up into a place of authority, and many have pondered, and this is a good thing to ponder, I believe, what was it? about Joseph that God saw. What was it about him? Surely it wasn't his looks. Surely it wasn't things like that. There was something that God saw deep in the heart of Joseph that he saw that God grabbed hold of that God worked through. And a clue to what God saw in Joseph comes from an overview of Joseph's life. When we look at Joseph's life as it's characterized in Scripture, we realize we start seeing the things that Joseph did. We also see the things that Joseph didn't do. You know, Joseph is never characterized as a rebel. (laughs) He wasn't rebellious. He also didn't hang out with the rebellious. (laughs) He was somewhat even separated from his own brothers who were rebellious against their father. He's not associated at all with wrongdoing. When you read about Joseph, it's a marvel that him and Daniel seem to be two of the folks that there's little to nothing said bad about them in Scripture. So he's not associated with with rebellion himself. He doesn't hang out with rebellious people. He's not into wrongdoing. He doesn't even seem to have wrong attitudes. Do you ever read where his brother says something to him and and he snaps back and says, well, I'll tear your head off, man, or something like that? He doesn't say anything like that. No words like that are recorded coming from Joseph's mouth. So he has the right attitudes. He seems to give the right words and say the right words. And he seems to have the right underlying motive and what's motivating him in in his life. And we sum that all up with one word, one English language word. Joseph had integrity. Integrity. How many of you have heard that word before, integrity? <laughs> he had integrity. There are many definitions of it, but one definition of integrity is doing what is right and pleasing before God, no matter what time, no matter what place, no matter what circumstance, and no matter what company you're in. That's integrity. Integrity. Doing what's right in the sight of God and that pleases him regardless. Doesn't matter. You're going to do that. You can be by yourself or you can be with a crowd, but you're going to keep doing what's right in the sight of God. That's integrity personified. And Joseph seemed to have that. And integrity is an underlying principle that we find in the New Covenant. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 21, it says, Or we take pain's We take pains to do what is right, not only in the sight of God, but also in the sight of other people. We take pains. We give this serious effort to do what's right. And we as believers, Messianic believers, if you're a believer here today, you are called to obey God. And in so doing, as you're obeying God, to be people of uncompromised morality and integrity. And I believe Joseph was just like that. The truth is that he, he was alone with Potiphar's wife because that was his task to be there as the head servant of Potiphar's house, but he didn't do wrong. The truth is that he did come into a lot of wealth as he raised up in power in Egypt, but he was not unfaithful with other people's stuff. And the list goes on and on. And we need to each day in our lives. Our daily lives should line up with the Lord and with the Lord's word as best as possible. We need to, can I say it this way, follow him in all of our ways. Not just Shabbat day, but every day. Follow him. If we will adhere to his truth and will do good works as he desires us to do and glorify the Messiah, he will continue to work through our life. I'm I'm sure of it. One person wrote this, quote, living with integrity in a world which, where the corrupt seem favored, not to mention our battle with our own sin nature, is challenging. Let me read that again. Living with integrity in a world where the corrupt seem favored, not to mention our battle with our own sin nature, is, this our author says, is challenging. Do you agree with that? Is it challenging to live in that kind of circumstance? It is, I agree. But by God's grace, by God's grace, Joseph rises up. God calls him to rise up. There's a proverb, Proverbs 18, verse 12, that says, the second part of it says, before honor is Humility. Humility. And Joseph, would you agree with me? He went through many humbling experiences, one after the other. He he could have wondered, What is going on in my life? He could have wondered. And yet, there's no indication that he was this blatant sinner and that what was happening to him was a result of his own sinfulness. Could he have been wiser at times? Perhaps, maybe wiser in dealing with his brothers. But he was naive and innocent in his dealings with his brothers somewhat. And God was with Joseph, and I think importantly, and we shouldn't forget this other side of this coin, God was with Joseph for sure. Scripture says that. And it sure seems like Joseph was with God too. God was with Joseph, and Joseph was with God. And there you have this union, this relationship that is earth-shaking and, and changes our whole direction in life. So let me conclude here this morning. So friends... If if you are a sincere believer in Yeshua and you are daily, you're daily, you're just seeking to serve him, the Lord is with you just as he promised. He promised he wouldn't forsake you or leave you. He said he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Both of those quoted from the book of Hebrews, Messianic Jews. So this means he is with you this means he's with you when you struggle. This means he's with you when you are facing trials in your life. He's with you. This means he's with you when you're going through th- things in your life. Even if you don't even understand what's happening in your life, he's with you. If you really belong to him and you're walking his way, he's with you. He doesn't leave or forsake. He's not fickle in his love towards his people. He's committed in his love for his people. Even when you're going through things you didn't bargain for in life, you don't know where they come from, he's with you. Don't forsake him. He's with you. Draw nearer to him. Call upon him while he's near. But also, beware, though, if some of your struggles or some of our struggles come from our own sinfulness, our own choices in life, our own bad choices in life. Yes, he doesn't forsake us, but he does call us to repent and turn to him and get these things out of our life, to get rid of those rotten fruit of the flesh type stuff. And that list, if you read it again on your own time in Galatians 5, it's a harrowing list. It deals with everything from actual actions, the first thing mentioned is adultery, to inner type stuff. He wants that stuff out of us. He's coming for what? A bride without spot or blemish. Do you think he's serious about that? I do. I think he is. And yet, in our own lives, we realize, wow, yeah, I'm not always doing what I should be doing. We need to repent and turn to him if that's the case. Because he's with his people. He doesn't forsake us. But if your struggles are not a result of your own deeds your own sinfulness, if they're not a result of your own deeds, please hear me. If what's happening in your life is not because you're doing evil things and you're getting the consequences, but if you're going through some things that just seem to have a sovereign premature on them, a thumbprint on them, and you're going through things you don't know where they're coming from. You've, you've done inventory in your life, said, I don't know what I'm doing. I, I can't see. I, can't even, I don't know what I can even repent of. I don't know. If you're going through that, God may be working in you to bring you to a newer place in his kingdom. A newer position, a newer place, a newer place of responsibility. If you realize, hey, I've repented of the things that I know I'm doing wrong, and, and yet it seems I'm going through all kinds of things that have come for me from left and right, top and bottom. He may be bringing you through some things to prepare you like a potter does clay and bringing you through the proverbial fires so that you'll be purified and more useful to him in what he desires of you. And you know what's scary about that, or I would say difficult is a better word, is he doesn't often reveal, us, reveal to us what that's going to be. He doesn't always tell us We just have to walk through the fires with him and pass through the waters, as Isaiah says, and that he's not going to leave us nor forsake us, but he brings us to his place. And you know, he he promised in Psalm 32, verse 8, he says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. And then he says, and I've always loved the way this is said, I will guide you with my eye. One translation say, I will guide you with my eye upon you, which is the implication of the Hebrew. I'll guide you with my eye. You don't have to be pretty close to see somebody. I'll guide you with my eye upon you. Now let me leave you with five things to keep in mind as you daily walk with the Lord. Number one. You are not facing your challenges alone. So call upon him while he is near. Number two, others are also going through similar trials. (laughs) So your struggles are not unique to you. Satan loves to make us think we're the only one that's ever been through this. Make us think we're so unique and, and, and we're the only ones and all that. But no, There's no temptation that has come upon you, but such as is common to humanity. But God is faithful. So others are also going through the trials. And, you know, there's the adage that misery loves company. Well, it's more than that in this. There's recognition that some of the the struggles you're going through as a believer, other people across the face of the earth are going through them. And I imagine there are even Josephs right now in certain parts of this globe. Number three. Right in the middle of the five, you have spiritual weapons because of his spirit at work within you, so wield them. If you don't know what I'm talking about, refresh your memory with Ephesians chapter 6. You have spiritual weapons. Wield them. Don't just talk about them. Wield them. Number four, unlike Joseph... You have a spiritual mishpachah or family. That's one of the difficult things about Joseph's story. He was separated away from his family. Spiritually, we have a mishpachah. We have a family, a body of believers. That's why we should be meeting together regularly. So we should participate in congregation life as much as we can. It's for our own benefit, but also for those who we will be a benefit to. And then lastly, number five, even Joseph struggles you know what? Even his struggles, as dire and severe as they were, they did not last forever. Neither will yours. Sometimes when you're in the midst of a struggle, you think this is never going to end. Joseph's struggles and all the complexities of it did not last forever. And, you know, there might be weeping in the evening, in the nighttime, but joy comes in the morning. (laughs) Let's pray together. Please know he's faithful. He's faithful to us, so make it your point to be faithful to him in every area of your life. Let us live with integrity. Lord, thank you for allowing us to consider your word today. Thank you as we began this service, remembering what's going on in the land of Israel not too far from where some of the very things we read about in Joseph's life took place and in Jacob's life. Lord, we pray as we go about the rest of this day that we will be mindful of your hand upon us. Be mindful, O oh Lord, that, that you desire us to repent of evil and turn away from the, the evil things, the fruit of the flesh, and you desire us to be filled with the Spirit, the fruit and the gifts of the Spirit. Lord, as we consider this Shabbat, please help us to enter into further rest with you, following you and obeying you. In Yeshua's name, amen.
0: You've been listening to the Shabbat message from Rosh Pina Messianic Jewish Congregation in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. We would love to have you visit us. Our weekly services begin at 1040 a.m. each Shabbat, and we are located at 2600 Northwest 55th Place, north of Northwest Expressway at the corner of Northland Avenue and Northwest 55th Place. We meet each Shabbat for wonderful praise and worship with dance, liturgy, teaching, food, fellowship, excellent children's programs and Bible studies on Tuesday nights. For more information, please visit our website, www.roshpinah.org. That's R-O-S-H-P-I-N-A-H.org. You can also reach us by phone at 405- or email us at info at roshpinah.org Thank you for spending time in the Word with us today. Shabbat Shalom and blessings in Messiah Yeshua.